This week's episode of the Hot Four podcast is proudly sponsored by Lalaman Brewing. Lalaman Brewing, a division of Lalaman Inc., a global producer of yeast and bacteria, is helping brewers achieve their growth and quality goals by offering products, services, and education. Lalaman Brewing's premium brewing yeast and bacteria deliver unmatched consistency, reliability, and purity, allowing brewers to take full control of the brewing process. At the forefront of innovation, Lalaman Brewing recently launched several dry yeast products, Lal Brew Voss, Wild Brew Philly Sour, and Lal Brew Verdant IPA. I personally use Lalaman yeast when brewing Emmanuel's and have been over the moon with their Verdant IPA yeast, not just in IPAs, but also in ESBs and a variety of other beers. It gives a lovely distinct flavour, attenuates well, and is just excellent to brew with. So for more information about Lalaman's products in the UK, please contact the local representative, Andrew Patterson. Global contact details for the UK and other territories can be found via their website, lalaman.com. That's lalaman.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Chris Malt. Since 1870, Crisp has been producing the finest malt at Great Ryborough in Norfolk. With five maltings located in the best barley growing areas in the UK, they produce a wide range of malts and non-malted cereals in 25 kilo sacks for craft brewers and distillers around the world. Check out their website for more information for their range of malts and also their educational blogs and webinars too at crispmalt.com. That's crispmalt.com. I'm Nick Law, and you're listening to the Hop Forward Podcast, getting you ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hop Forward is a weekly podcast dedicated to the craft beer industry, featuring interviews, discussions, and stories from the whole brewing supply chain from grain to glass. So grab yourself a glass, pour yourself a beer, and get ready to hop forward in the brewing and beer business. Welcome to another sesh on the Hot 4 podcast and happy Christmas everyone. It's official, it's December, you're allowed to genuinely say it live on air. But for many of us in the world of brewing, we've been preparing for Christmas since earlier this year. And here's something I've learned about Christmas. I'm going to let you in to a little beer business tip, okay? Here it goes. You should always start preparing for Christmas around summertime because every year, guaranteed, if you're anything like me, you think, I'll just get some out of the way first, then I'll concentrate on Christmas in September or October. And then September comes around, the kids go back to school, there's this natural rhythm we have in the calendar, which means we end up being involved in other events or whatever. And before you know it, it's mid-November and you haven't even started brewing your spiced imperial barley wine or your winter red berry saison. And you've got an event coming up on the 12th of December at the Industry Tap in Sheffield. <coughs> Some beers. And you're trying to brew and package beer on the same day. Not, not that you can relate to any of all that. Yes, as you probably gathered, it's been an insane few weeks here at Hot Ford HQ. COVID, Christmas and beer judging. I was recently involved in two days of intense beer judging, which to my friends really sounds like I'm truly living the dream. Perhaps some of you listening may even be thinking, that sounds awesome. All right, I'm not going to lie to you. On one level, it really is. I'm in my zone chatting about beer with people who love it as equally, if not more, than I do, dissecting the complex flavours and aromas that hazy IPA after hazy IPA kick off. I'm getting mm, citra on the nose and... Mm, 
mosaic and citra flavours. Okay, next one. Mmm, citra on the nose and this, mmm, yeah, mosaic and citra flavours. Okay, next hazy IPA. Um, mmm, smells like citra and mmm, tastes like mosaic and citra. Okay, what's the name? Oh, another hazy IPA. Okay, yep, citra and Oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. Mosaic and citra flavours. I never, ever, 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 ever want to drink another hazy IPA again. Now, I'm probably somewhat hypocritical in saying this, having brewed two <laughs> hazy IPAs recently. But if you listen to this podcast and you're a brewer, like, buckle up for this surpassing revelation. There are other types of pale ale out there. Shocking, I know. Okay, and I might get cancelled for saying this and brought down by the craft beer police, but not every IPA has to include Citra and Mosaic. In fact, there was one beer in the IPA category that had an instant burst of coconut on the nose upon opening the can, followed by an intense pineapple and white grape aroma. The inviting smell drew you in and the taste was every bit as glorious as the nasal passages suggested it would be. Sabro hopped, Sriracha Ace perhaps? I know the latter is a hop that people don't get on with so well, but it was just different. And different is good. But more importantly, it was well-brewed, which helped massively. And don't take well-brewed beers for granted. What beer judging does, it forces you to describe flavours and aromas, the good, the bad and the ugly. But how do we describe our senses? How do we put words to something that is so complex, whether good or bad? Often it's about painting a picture and building a profile by using language to describe the different characteristics, which is pretty easy per se if, like my wife, you have a degree in English literature or you're naturally more articulate. But what if you don't possess those kind of language skills or even the vocabulary to accurately describe what you're sensing? This week's discussion on the Hot 4 podcast was incredibly timely and came right off the back of beer judging. So it was great to welcome back my friend Mark Dredge, beer writer and educator, onto the show to discuss his updated version of the flavour wheel, how we describe flavours, what we should be writing on the side of our cans and bottles to describe the liquid to our customers, and how beer styles and flavours aren't always a straightforward match. As you can tell, there's a lot to discuss this week. However, before all that, over the next few weeks, we've partnered with one of our sponsors, Lalaman Brewing, to bring you a little featurette on their various yeast strains, looking at each one and what role they can play in your beers, delivering the flavours and aromas that people want to drink. So I'm joined by Andrew Patson from Lalaman Brewing. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Cool. Uh, so for, for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to do just a little featurette on some of your different yeast strains. So um, why, why don't you talk about Farmhouse? Because I, I love a good saison. So um, talk about Farmhouse and I've, I've got some questions to follow up because I'm really interested. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a very new product for us. I think it's only come out in the last three months or something. Um, but it's a saison strain, which has been uh, bred specifically not to have the diastaticus characteristic that you see in uh, regular genetic saison strains. Um you know, we've seen saison strains have been kind of falling out of the market a little bit over the years, mm. and it's it's probably partly down to like just kind of transient crop beer fashions, but also a little bit due to the fact that people are scared of using uh, diastaticus positive yeast uh, in the brewery. Yeah. So this promises to be like a, a 
a risk-free way of creating Saison-like flavour. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a pretty cool product. So for anyone that's not familiar with diastaticus, can you just explain what that is? Yeah, so essentially your your Saison strains, they secrete an amyloglucosidase enzyme into the brewer's wort. Um, And what that does is it breaks down your complex dextrins that would be left over at the end of fermentation into simple sugars. Um, And then your yeast will ferment them anyway. So whereas a standard fermentation, you know, probably stop in the mid-teens or or the or the or the tens, depending on what kind of beer you've brewed, this will just complete uh, continue going on down towards zero. Um, you just get super attenuation. Yes, that's that'll explain why my saisons of uh, over time always got down to like ten oh two or something silly. <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I have seen people put cask saison out with uh, like seven points of gravity and the, the yep. keystones going bang before which is yeah, yeah. It's, it's good to watch so so <laughs> what, what kind of flavors can people expect from farmhouse if it's if it's not finishing that low um and i, I presume what about 10 10 or something 10 08 you get down to or? well so the attenuations um it's similar to like a, a high attenuating ale strain right. so i mean it, it, you know this is putting it very simplistically but you your your brewing yeast tend to ferment your malta trios your maltose and your glucose, um, if they're a full attenuating brewer's yeast strain, and it will do all of those. So you're probably seeing attenuation somewhere in the like high 70s to low 80s, depending on the mash temperature, mm. um, which will obviously still give you a much higher final gravity than you would have if you used a saison strain. Um, so flavor-wise, it, it's putting out all these saison flavors, but attenuation-wise, it's not going as far. So what you might find if you don't take other steps is that you might end up with quite a a sweet beer or a beer that would be sweeter or less dry than your standard Saison. Um, but you can use enzymes that mashing or in fermentation to get the the full kind of attenuation while still having that, that Saison flavour as well. Awesome. So w- which breweries out there at the moment are, are using it? Have you got any good examples of um, a, maybe a beer, a small contrario? People that have done lots of ad hoc stuff. I don't know anybody that's using it as like a, you know, a standard Saison strain all the time. But I've worked with a few breweries, um, Solvay in London, who are kind of a, a Belgian-based Oh, brewery. I love those guys. They make great yeah, beer. Yeah, so we did a, a beer recently with this, uh, with the farm strain, and they named it Pata Saison, because they play on my last <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> which, which, which is a little cringy, but I, yeah, no, I can't do that. Um, and then uh, I think it was, oh, actually it was probably quite a long time ago. It was when we first launched the trial packs of um, the Saison strain. I did some work with um, some guys down in Brighton called Cloak and Dagger and Hand Brewery. Right. Um, and we did uh, a Saison with elderflower, which came out really well. Very high amyloglucosidase enzyme dose into the mash. So you had a full, full kind of attenuation, uh, very dry. Uh, and they've since used it for a couple of years as well. So they're using it down there. Yeah. Do you so think Saisons make a comeback? I, I hope they do. I love a good Saison. Yeah, I, I do actually. Yeah, no, I. Saison de Pont's a great beer, and we need more beers like that. So yeah. uh, I really hope it comes back. But um, I don't know; it tends to be a summery style. So maybe, maybe next summer is going to be the, the second coming of the summer. Of <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> we can cross our fingers. Yeah, Bill. Well, how, how can people get hold of Farmhouse? So we've got a couple of distributors in the UK, uh, and they should be able to stock it. So uh, I would go to them and ask. And if they don't have it, then whinge at me, and I'll ask them to order it. Bill, and what about elsewhere in the world, in America, and? Some of the places. Yeah, it, it's global, so um, you should be able to get it in in yeah, in all markets on the Lalaman website. We've got some where we list all our distributors, so if you wanted to check out there, you can find out all the different stockists in the different countries around the world. Well, I hope you enjoyed those little pearls of wisdom from Lalaman Brewing. Make sure you check out the farmhouse strain. I certainly am. The next time I brew a saison. 
And one more thing, which I'm very, very excited about. This coming Sunday, the 12th of December, if you're in Sheffield or you're not, but you want to travel there because Sheffield is the greatest city on planet Earth, Hopes and Beers is happening at the Industry Tap on Sydney Street in Sheffield from 6pm, an evening of Emmanuel's with some funked up festive hymns as played by myself. I'm going to bring out all the hits, Oh Little Town of Bethlehem, How the Herald Angels Sing, all I want for Christmas is you, <laughs> maybe. Um, but it's going to be great. I've brewed um, several beers for this. Um, <laughs> after my hazy IPA rant, I've got a double dry hopped Galaxy Pacific Pale Ale called Jonah the Pale. I've got a double IPA called, wait for it, A Hazing Grace. I mean, come on, come on. And the big one, a spiced imperial barley wine called Ale Mary. It's 9%. It tastes like pure Christmas in a glass. If you like mince pies, you're going to like this beer. If you hate mince pies, you're going to like this beer. It's just ho, 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 hoppy Christmas, all concentrated in one half pint glass. It's going to be epic. So make sure you get down to the industry tap this Sunday, the 12th of December for Emmanuel's Hopes and Beers. Not only is Hot Forward a brewing industry dedicated podcast, but we also provide creative media solutions and consultancy for companies and people who are looking to get ahead in the brewing and beer business. Hot Forward works with a range of diverse enterprises from across the world of beer to provide branding and marketing consultancy, brewing and business advice, and bespoke creative solutions to help you hot rocket your way to success. Check out hotforward.beer for more info or connect with us on social media at Hot Forward Beers. Finally, don't forget to thank our sponsors who make this show possible on a weekly basis. This week's episode of the Hot Forward Podcast is proudly sponsored by Lalaman Brewing. Lalaman Brewing, a division of Lalaman Inc., a global producer of yeast and bacteria, is helping brewers achieve their growth and quality goals by offering products, services, and education. Lalaman Brewing's premium brewing yeast and bacteria deliver unmatched consistency, reliability and purity, allowing brewers to take full control of the brewing process. At the forefront of innovation, Lalaman Brewing recently launched several dry yeast products, Lal Brew Voss, Wild Brew Philly Sour and Lal Brew Verdant IPA. I personally use Lalaman yeast when brewing Emmanuel's and have been over the moon with their Verdant IPA yeast, not just in IPAs, but also in ESBs and a variety of other beers. It gives a lovely distinct flavour, attenuates well, and is just excellent to brew with. So for more information about Alamo's products in the UK, please contact the local representative, Andrew Patterson. Global contact details for the UK and other territories can be found via their website, lalaman.com. That's lalaman.com. Today's show is also sponsored by Chris Malt. Since 1870, Crisp has been producing the finest malt at Great Ryber in Norfolk. With five maltings located in the best barley growing areas in the UK, they produce a wide range of malts and non-malted cereals in 25 kilo sacks for craft brewers and distillers around the world. Check out their website for more information for their range of malts and also their educational blogs and webinars too at chrismalt.com. That's chrismalt.com. For now, grab a beer and let's crack open today's discussion. On the Hot Four podcast this week, I'm joined by Mark Dredge. Again, hello. 
Hi, thanks for having me back. It's all right. It doesn't seem like two minutes since you were on last time. I know, no, it's a, it's a, I'm very happy to be here. Happy days. So I believe you were at the British Guild of Beer Writers Awards yesterday. Was that right? Yeah, yeah. Last night, yeah. big sort of annual industry event. Which awesome. didn't happen last year because, you know, it was an online event. Yes. As most things were. So yeah, it was really nice just to be back with, you know, 200 other beer writers, you know, people I haven't seen for, for at least two years. Yeah, amazing. So how hungover are you on a scale of 0 to 10? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm going like up and down, actually. Right. I'm trying to write an article at the moment and all I've got to do is 250 words and like I cannot get any of the words in the right order. Oh, it's that. Right. It's like I keep hitting myself in the face. It's like it's so frustrating that I can't <laughs> just put these few little words together. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it was that I had to get the last train home. Right. So I no longer live in London. So for me now, it's a matter of, you know, I get home very, very late or I leave a little bit earlier and make sure I get in at oh, a reasonable right. time. So, okay. Is yeah. it Brighton? Am I right in thinking? Eastbourne, Eastbourne, so nearby. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's like the next town over. Yeah. I've been to Eastbourne like many, many moons ago. My, my long lasting impression, I have two long lasting impressions of Eastbourne. One was I got food poisoning when I was there from a, from a <laughs> chippy. So uh, I remember having really bad DNV, which was fun. And um, everyone owning a sausage dog. Oh, okay. Like, I don't know if that's still a thing, but like, it seems like... It doesn't seem so much my current experiences of it. There are lots of dogs, <laughs> lots of much sausage dogs. Yeah, it's just... Um, everyone... And I haven't yet had food poisoning from a chip shop, so... That's, that's good, yeah. <laughs> I can't remember which one, so, uh, yeah. It's a, it's a bit like Russian roulette, I suppose. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, t- today we're going to talk about um, beer flavours, and um, you've got a, a new flavour wheel. So I, th- I think people that are familiar with the, the beer flavour wheel will probably know that because you sort of developed that um you know a, a while back but you've updated it recently so can, can you just talk us through what it is and what it does and and that process yeah of course so the the story goes back quite a long way actually so it goes back to about 2012 um and i was writing a book it was it was the first book i wrote it's called craft beer world and it's all about flavor and essentially you know how beer how beer tastes and i was trying to write these nice tasting notes and I was looking for resources or tools to try and help me to make sure I was kind of using the right words. And there's been an industry standard beer flavor wheel for for decades. I think the end, of, like the late 1970s, it mm. was it was developed. Um, but this wheel is is essentially designed to find negative flavors in kind of industrial beer. It's not designed to find the delicious flavors, and it's not designed to give you the words to describe. Um, the, the great characteristics of beer. So I really wanted to try and work on that. And actually it just began as this personal project to see alongside writing the book, whether I could actually develop something that was familiar as a wheel that had more relevant terms to a consumer, to a, to a regular drinker, not just um, someone in a lab or someone in the quality department of, of a large brewery. Um, and it took forever. It was, it was this really strange project in this strange summer where I spent most of it lying on my living room floor, drawing circles around dinner plates and drawing lines with rulers, trying to do it. And I did it all manually. I didn't have any other way of doing it. That way I didn't think I had another way of doing it at that point. And I was just drawing these wheels. And eventually after many, many like kind of iterations and versions, it came in and it developed into something actually that was quite good and sent it to my publisher. They sent it to the designer and it came back as this really nice wheel. Um, and because I thought this is something that's quite good, I, I asked my publisher if I could sort of have, essentially have the rights 
to the wheel mm. that I could do what I like with it. And, and they were like, uh, yeah, okay, sure. But I never did anything with it. So it was always like in my head, I should sell this as posters or this is useful to people, but I never, I never did that. Um, and then just kind of forgot about it. It just became this, this thing, which I'd done years ago. And then last year I was rewriting that book. So uh, kind of a new version of the mm-hmm. book Craft Beer World. So I thought, well, you know what, if I'm going to do that, I might have another go at the beer wheel. There were terms on there, which were outdated. There were terms on, there were terms which were missing. So I thought, you know, this, this could just do with a complete overhaul and we can just redo this, this wheel. Um, and then it, it just kind of rolled from there and it escalated from there. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, what I really need to do is, is find the foundation of all the main ingredients. So I can't just come in with trying to develop the wheel on its own. I need to, first of all, work out what all the words are that we might use for hops, then all the words that we might use for malt, then all the words that we might use for fermentation and maturation. So I developed three wheels there, and then I worked out the most important terms, I suppose, to combine into one beer flavor wheel. Um, and it was, a, it was a really interesting process because I thought, you know, to do this properly, I can't just have this as a solo project. That seems, that's not the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to a hop company, um, so Yakima Chief Hops. I spoke to Lalaman Yeast, and I spoke to Crisp uh, Malt. And I said to them, like, you know, can you help me out, basically? I want to get this right. Can you, I speak to your sensory experts? Can I speak to your um, the people who are in charge of the flavor of all your ingredients? And can we try and develop these things together? Can we try and develop tools which are useful for everyone in the beer industry, whether that is just someone drinking at home who's thinking, I don't quite know what that flavor is, all the way through to bar staff who want to understand flavor a bit better Mm. up to brewers in the laboratory doing their sensory analysis and doing their weekly tastings and trying to just make sure that they're using the correct consistent language wow that's that's a lot of work incidentally um i was talking to uh, andrew patterson from uh earlier today who said that he'd been in touch um and that they helped out with that so yeah yeah so he was one of the first people i went to because i've met him before and i chatted to him before and that was the hard, that was a hard world to put together. Yeah. You know, the flavors of yeast for most people, the flavors of yeast are either inconsequential because we don't necessarily taste them that much or they're the opposite. And you're thinking about sour beers or you're thinking about, you know, funky Britannomyces, or you're thinking about maybe the banana in a Hefeweizen or the, the spiciness in a whip beer, but actually there's so much more to the characteristics of fermentation. So I really wanted to get that down onto into something that was usable. Um, and it was difficult because I decided to use um, proper chemical terms for, for the yeast um, alongside its flavor. So, mm. you know, banana is this common ester in beer, this fruity ester that naturally comes out through fermentation. Um, but that banana flavor is, is called isoamylacetate. And that's a term that brewers use. So I thought I, I will put both of those on there. So I made the conscious decision with some terms, particularly on that wheel, the fermentation wheel, to not just be kind of the sourced based flavor like banana, mm. but also to give the scientific term. Yeah. We'll come on to the the brewer aspect of this in, in a few moments, because obviously this is a more industry focused show, but just for the, the regular quote unquote drinker, what, why do you think it's important for you know joe or jane blogs or whoever to be um while they're, while they're drinking a beer be able to analyze 
and put descriptions to the beer flavors that they're having. Mm. It's, it's a really difficult thing to do. You know, it's my job to do it. And I sit there, you know, whenever I have a beer, I love actually taking out my notebook and writing down my impressions on it and my thoughts mm. on it. But it's, it's a really difficult thing to do and you really have to train to do it. Um, so for me, initially as, as a tool, I think it presents the right words at least. So it's almost like learning a language. You start learning different words and then hopefully you learn the meaning behind those words, like what that actually is. Like it's very easy to say pineapple, but actually what does that, what does that mean as a flavor sense? Like, okay, well, I actually smell pineapple now. And I think that then creates a connection and then almost like creating a sentence, you can string together what those meanings are. So that, okay, it smells like pineapple. It's an IPA. So it's probably coming from the hops and so on. So I think ultimately, or to begin with, it's just learning the lexicon. It's learning the right words we use mm. for beer. Um, but I think really the will, the importance of, of language is that it helps us get the beer that we most want to drink, or it helps someone who's serving behind the bar choose the right beer for the person who is ordering. You know, if I come in and I say at the bar, I want something that's crisp, bitter, about 6% and really aromatic citrusy. I mean, really clear there what I want. And if the person behind the bar knows, knows those words, then they'll say, okay, we've got this West Coast IPA here for you. Or maybe we haven't got quite that, but this Pilsner is really bitter and aromatic. And I think you might like that. Whereas if someone walks in and, and they don't quite know what they're looking for, but maybe they know what they don't want. And they go to the bar and like, well, I like something like smooth and not too dark, but not too bitter. Like that doesn't really necessarily help because there's a lack of specifics there. Mm. So I think if we're all speaking the same language about beer and all understand the same language, it helps all of us get what we want out of it. Yeah. You know, we can order the right beer. The person serving can make sure that I get the beer that I want. And the brewers can make sure they're brewing the beers that, that people are kind of asking for, that, that people want, kind of matching the expectations that people, that people have. Yeah, I think you touch upon a really important point there, particularly for bar staff, um, because, you know, it's, it's very easy to take for granted the you go to like a, you know, a craft beer bar, you know, generally the kind of places that will stock a wide range of um, beers from microbreweries and cans and all the rest of it. And, and, and generally speaking, the people that work in places like that are quite passionate. They, they know a lot about the subject. So you can, you know, they've got a lot of that terminology already um, or, or a good vocab to maybe intercede for somebody else that goes in and knows not that much about it. But I've been so many pubs where um, I might ask, you know, what's what's good? It's like that scene in Hot Fuzz, if you've seen that film, where it's like, barkeep, what's your wine selection? He's <laughs> like, well, we've got red or white, <laughs> you know? And it's, and like you say, you know, have you got like a nice sort of pale ale? I'm like, oh, well, th this one's yellow. And I think that one is, I don't know, Jeff. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's so important to put language um, to people and for bar staff to to be trained um, in this. I mean, would you just um, using your flavor wheel, like how would you recommend that um, maybe bar managers train their staff using it? What what sort of techniques can they do, tastings and that kind of thing? Yeah, I, th I think one way that it works really well is just to be drinking a beer while you're while you're looking at something like this, particularly if you're still trying to learn maybe some of those base terms, you know, we're very, 
we're very susceptible to flavor. You know, if I handed you um, a pale beer and I said, this smells like oranges and lemons, you're probably going to smell oranges and lemons. You know, it might not have that in there mm. at all. Like we might categorically be able to say with a panel of 10 industry experts that say this smells like rosemary and pepper. But I could say to you, orange and lemons, and you'll probably smell orange and lemons. So in a way, just by tasting a beer and looking at, say, some of these words, you might say, okay, well, I don't think it's floral. It doesn't taste like grass or the earth, but actually it does have a fruitiness to it. And that fruitiness to me, I think, is maybe something more tropical. So I think it can just help guide you in the right direction mm. and, and hopefully build up confidence. You know, I think that's one, one thing with this is it's, you know, this is not, these are not the only words that we can use. But this is a good starting point to guide you in the right direction. Yeah. Um, and we can get as specific as you like with tasting notes. And we can be as evocative as you like. You know, we can take, we can say, okay, it smells like lemon. And you can make that into, you know, lemon curd on fresh toast. You can turn that into lemon meringue pie. You can turn that into um, bitter lemon, served, you know, dropped from a straw on a Greek island. You know, you can you can do what you like with that. But that's not not for the space on the wheel. That doesn't work. But you know, as we get better at tasting and being more evocative and being more descriptive, we can go that far. But to begin with, it's very, for me, it's much more about just having the confidence to be able to taste a beer and, and put the right words to it. And it doesn't need to be a really complex description. Yeah. It can simply be the malt is bready or the malt is roasted. The hops are citrusy or they are peppery or they are tropical. You know, it, that, is, that is enough for most people to match um, to, to kind of guide them in the right direction. Yeah, I guess it's a stepping stone, isn't it? Because like you've just, with the, some of the language you just used there, um, my wife's an English teacher and um, periodically I'll get on the shopping list that she wants to get some um, Maya gold um, for a lesson uh, where she'll break it up into little pieces and then serve it to the kids and they've got to write about it and describe it. Mm -hmm. And um, this came back to me yesterday when um, I was beer judging for a national competition and um, I had your flavor wheel up in front of me because it was like, right, okay, you know, there's a lot of terms I'm familiar with, but sometimes because you, you're trying to describe something that's not quite, it's, it, I always find with beer, it's kind of like, more often than not, it's, everything's not quite like, it's, oh, that's like say lemon, like it's it it tastes kind of like lemon, but not. And yet, and, and so you you're almost sort of shooting towards particular things, which is why I think coming back to what you just said with language, like you, you've got to create an imagery about it. Like like you say, mm. it's like eating lemon curd on crunchy toast, yeah, or uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and yeah, I think we've got to paint a picture. This is a good lesson, I guess, for brewers listening. You know, the, the, when you're trying to describe on your can or your bottle or in your trade mail outs, whatever, what does it taste like? You know, this is where you've got to really dig down and work on your language. Yeah. And it's really difficult and it's really interesting actually, because I think a lot of maybe, maybe expert drinkers, they can understand a tasting note if it's written, you know, quite specifically, but actually if it's kind of a non-expert drinker, they're looking for a beer that suits a function, I think. So it might be that they want something that is bold and intense. So you need to get across in your tasting note that um, characteristic. 
it doesn't necessarily, they're not necessarily looking for pineapple or peaches or pine cones. They're looking for intense flavor. Mm. Other times they're looking for crisp refreshment. You know, you could probably use the same tasting note to describe a Pilsner, an IPA or a Saison, but you're going to get something completely different or a dark mild or an imperial stout. You could use the same tasting note, but unless you add in like specifics like intensity or, you know, things which, which direct the drinker to know what type of beer it really is and what type of experience they're going to have, you know, that's something, that's something that's very important to, to get right. Yeah. Because a lot of the time we do drink by what we fancy. You know, we go in, it's like, well, I'm, I'm thirsty today. I just really fancy a crisp lager. Or it's like, it's, I've just been for a long walk. It's cold outside. What I want is a lovely pint of dark mild. So we, we, we drink to suit and to sate certain thirsts, certain feelings that we have. So it's, it's getting across from the, from the brewers, you know, what function, I suppose, is this drink gonna, gonna give the drinker? And that's kind of a sciencey way of looking at it. But actually for most drinkers, that's what they're, that's what they're after. Yeah. I'm I'm curious actually off the back of that as a, as a beer writer, um, you know, who's, who's obviously good with language, um, just any advice you could give to brewers out there listening to this when it comes to um, describing, you know, what, what they sh- physically should put on the side of their packaging when it comes to mm. not just the flavour description, but like... Um, you know, is it is it enough just to describe the flavour, or do you need to use some of the, like coming back to the Greek drinking, you know, lemons for a straw on a Greek island? Like, mm-hmm. should should breweries be getting more flowery and colourful with their language and a bit more fun when it comes to writing those descriptions? Because I've come across so many where it's just like this is a hoppy pale ale that is hoppy with extra hops, and it's like okay, <laughs> just like the next can next to it. Now, I'm not. I'm not suggesting every brewerist needs to go out and get an English degree and starts writing prose like Shakespeare. But um, you know, what, what would you say to brewers out there when they come to thinking about what they put on their cans? Yeah, it's it's a really difficult and it's a really interesting topic because there's there's so much space for these evocative beer descriptions. Um, but for me, they're almost better served on maybe a website or maybe on social media where you can kind of have a bit more fun with it mm. and you could be a bit more kind of fluid with it and a bit more you know um yeah it's, it's a bit kind of a bit less set in it, it you know the print on a, on the side of a can is very much a set number of words that's describing a set experience and that experience is what people are, are directly in front of and i think if you go too specific and too unusual and the drinker doesn't have that same experience then they probably assume that they aren't tasting it right. So it makes them perhaps feel undermined by the drink. They're like, well, this is maybe not right for me because I'm not having the same experience that the brewer suggests I am. So I think that specificity, if I've got that quite right, (laughs) to be really specific is really interesting and to be really evocative is really great. But actually I think on tasting notes, simple is definitely best. Um, I do, as much as I love full descriptions of beer and you know a, li- a shopping list of different fruits i think if you can say this is a, a citrusy ipa that's um that's bitter and dry or you can say this is a juicy hazy ipa that's you know full of tropical fruits that gets across really clearly what it is without having to say it's got overripe papaya you know roasted pineapple grilled lemon whatever because then you're getting into something that's a little bit too 
um, too specific. And the, the thing with flavor is that it's very, it's very uniquely personal. So I could say it tastes like underripe papaya. And to me, that could be everything that I'm tasting in this beer. But unless the, the drinker or other drinkers have tasted underripe papaya, they're not going to know what that flavor is. Mm. Or they're certainly not going to have that same experience with it. Yeah. You know, if you've never had underripe papaya, what you might smell is melon or you might smell like mango, but like watered down mango or whatever else it, it might be. So, you know, this, the, the, the sense of flavor or the, what becomes flavor in our mind is uniquely personal to what we, to what we've experienced before. And there's no way around that. You know, it's very, you know, one flavor that's often talked about in, in beer tasting notes is gooseberry. So we see gooseberry talked about with say Nelson Sovan, New yep. Zealand hops with this sort of like this tangy berry flavor, but it's a flavor that not that many people really know. You know, I've had, I've had, my granddad used to make gooseberry fall. So I remember it from that. And I'm sure I've had a gooseberry crumble before, but in my life, I've probably had gooseberry three or four times and I couldn't necessarily very clearly say that's gooseberry. And to me, it crosses over with flavors like grape and elderflower and just tart tropical fruits. So there's this whole like, uh, I don't know, like Venn diagram. There's gooseberry somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But in the US, gooseberry is not really a flavor reference that that many people understand because I think something like the 1930s, they got rid of all the gooseberries in that were planted because it carried some kind of um, pest that was affecting other crops. So it was just taken out. So it's not been part of the, the flavor palette over there for, for generations. So they just oh. don't know gooseberry. So, so yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. Yeah, I wonder how they describe Nelson Savan then. Because <laughs> that, yeah. like, that, that is, you know, there was a, a beer I tried yesterday's competition and I, that, I thought that's Nelson Savan because it, it has that gooseberry white grape aroma mm. to it. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm interested as well, just off, from off the back of this as well. Um, so do you think that um, when it comes to writing those descriptions that like there's a there's a, a balance to be struck because obviously you, you don't want to not say anything but on the other hand like say if you if you if you if well, well we'll take the classic dessert imperial stout right if you just if you call it a dessert imperial stout and people crack it open it's like oh i'm getting peanuts i'm getting marshmallows i'm getting s'mores and so on like that's their experience of but if i said oh this is a blueberry waffle uh, milkshake, s'mores, um, pancake, red berry, imperial stout, then those breweries that do that almost fall further from grace when it doesn't meet the <laughs> drinker's expectation because of their description. Do you, mm. do you think that brewers need to hold back on the descriptions a bit and just let the, the, the drinker experience it for what it is? Or, I mean, how do you trade that off with beer styles then and that kind of thing? Yeah, like the pastry stout's an interesting one because often they're so um, almost comically flavoured that you can't miss it. And I think that's one of the reasons that people like these things because you can say it's blueberry waffles and s'mores and you're like, oh yeah, I open this and I immediately get that it's all those things because they are just overdone with these flavourings. So mm. you can't miss it. Um, but I think if you just got kind of a straight imperial stout that you're describing in that way and it doesn't necessarily match that expectation, that's when it becomes a little bit more of a, of, of the challenge. Um, but it is tricky. You know, I've, there's a kind of a philosophical debate that we could have about, you know, tasting notes on beer. 
and questioning how accurate brewers should be with it. You know, say you set out to brew a double IPA that is all peaches. It's all st- juicy stone fruits with some vanilla in there. But somehow it went wrong. And what you ended up with was something that was really piney, really sappy, really like dank and earthy. Like, do you then write the tasting note as this is a dank, earthy IPA, which actually not that many people really want? Or do you say this is a super juicy tropical IPA, which everyone wants to drink? You know, there is this debate there that you could easily do that. And just because that's going to sell better than that beer, just the, the the power of the description sells it. And actually, that's probably an important point here is that the reason we write these tasting notes is to sell these to sell these drinks and to give people, to, to help people make the right choice. So I think, yeah, being honest is definitely something that's good. And the philosophical d- dis- debate is whether, you know, <laughs> what happens when someone lies. Yeah, well... I think, I mean, it's hard to get away from beer styles and flavor descriptions because they're so interlinked. Um, But I guess two examples come to mind. I I remember just before we hit record, just for the benefit of the listeners, we we were talking about a double IPA I brewed. One of of the, I think it was the first double double IPA I brewed um, was in 2018. It was only like a a small batch, but... um, for reasons that are too long to go into, it it, it got oxidized um, and I bottled it anyway, which I shouldn't have done, um, and put it out there as a double IPA. Now, everyone felt cheated. I got absolutely savaged on <laughs> untapped and social media, as you can imagine. Um, if anyone's listening, go, go and look up The Last Supper by Emmanuel's on uh, untapped and read some of the colourful uh, descriptions of my beer. Um, but if I'd have called it a hoppy barley wine, mm. then there wouldn't have been an issue because it had the kind of the sweetness and the hallmarks of a barley wine rather than a double IPA. Um, and yet partly because it oxidised and it got some of that caramel-like quality, but it would have easily passed. Similarly, um, I tried a beer yesterday that was supposedly a best bitter, but it was smoky and it confused me because again, this was in a competition. I'm like, as a beer, this is fantastic. What, what, what it's like this, it's got this smoky, oaky, vanilla uh, aroma and flavor. You know, it was, it was really um, earthy. And I was just like, this is a fantastic beer, but is it a best bitter? So I'm in this quandary, particularly in a competition where I don't know how to mark this because if is it on style? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But it's a really nice beer. And it's, yeah, it's it's very, very challenging when you're um, trying to describe beer, particularly if you're judging it, um, which I'm, I'm sure you've been in, in, you know, judging on competitions and stuff, Mark. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, can you just talk, can you talk about some of those experiences when, when you're in that position where you're having to... Um, describe beers when you're judging them and um and what that's like yeah i love beer judging it's great it's great um you learn so much and actually i don't do that much but the the competitions that i do tend to do are are like like really good ones Mm. so like the world beer cup the great american beer festival so ones where it's sort of really high standard and the judges at the table are brewmasters they've been in the industry for years so you, you have to be really accurate and you have to be really on it with what you're doing and you have to be able to be quite quick to make your judgments and you're judging very specific to style 
So first of all, you need to understand the style to begin with. You know, if someone says, okay, this is the beer style, but you've never heard of it before, never tasted it before, they can give you a description, but that's kind of hard. So you need to have a point of reference for it. And then you just have to kind of understand that beer within its, within its context. You know, this is a, um, this is an amber ale. So these are the characteristics that I'm expecting from an amber ale. You know, how do we, how do we think about this? How do we describe it? Is it what we think it should be? Um, for me, a lot of the time in judging, the first part of it is getting rid of the bad beers yep. or getting rid of the beers, which aren't so good. And that's, that can be quite fun. You can be like, well, this beer is not right because of this. And it's, it's very interesting. And it's great to be able to talk about the delicious flavors in beers. Like, oh, I love this character and I love that character, but actually it's just as interesting to talk about when a beer is not quite right. And whether that is, it's got a slight imbalance or maybe the fermentation character is not quite right. Maybe this yeast note is making it, you know, is, is an off-putting characteristic. You know, maybe it's slightly muddled in its flavor. So discussing those parts of it for me is 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 fascinating because you learn, you know, you learn from your mistakes, right? And mm. in the same way you learn as much about actually if anything, you learn more about beer by drinking bad ones than you do good ones. Because as soon as you understand the bad flavors or the wrong flavors in beer, it makes the good flavors stand out so much more. Yep. It makes them so much, so much clearer, so much more enjoyable. Yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I love I love beer judging. Yeah, it's great. You know, again, coming back to the beer wheel, um, you know, I, I found it super helpful having it in front of me, particularly again with those off flavors, uh, because because sometimes you can't quite put your finger on what it is until you've got all the terminology in front of you, and um, you know, I, it amazes me the amount of brewers I've spoke to over you know the, the years where they they have no like lexicon and um f- and terminology or very mm. little terminology to to describe the beers they're brewing and it's like well if you can't detect an off flavor if you can't smell the acetaldehyde um then there's an issue you know and um i mean that that aroma drives me insane <laughs> Ut- you know this is i was thinking about this yesterday um acetaldehyde because it's it's one of those flavors that i've I know it because I've done off-flavor training and I've literally been given a spiked sample of lager yep. with, with acetaldehyde in it. Yep. So my fla- my brain has learned that flavor as acetaldehyde. So anytime I smell it, I'm really sensitive to it and I hate it. I hate it so much. It makes my eyes water. It's awful. And on a flavor wheel, on my flavor wheel, I use the term apple for it, but I don't smell it as apple. Mm. Like, not as a, you know, when I think apple, I think fresh Granny Smith. And it's certainly, as Aldo is not fresh Granny Smith. It's something different. Yep. And it's something like, it is kind of apple but it's almost like a fruity apple candy or like apple scented nail yeah, polish or like something like that. Synthetic apple. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's with a lot of the esters. So a lot of the sort of aroma compounds from hops, they're very natural. So when we smell, oranges and and apples or pears or cherry, whatever. They're natural chemical compounds, which are also found in those fruits. So they smell specifically like the fruits. Whereas I think it it seems to me that esters, kind of that from the the fermentation, kind of the byproducts of fermentation, they have more of of a synthetic characteristic to them. So if we say this is, um, 
a honey smell, or this is a banana smell, or this is an apple smell from the yeast. It's not really ever like a fresh apple or a fresh banana. It's this slightly fake version. Mm. You know, the, like the banana isoamyl acetate is like foam bananas, or it's like a banana, fake banana milkshake in a way. You know, it's not like I'm peeling a fresh banana and, and eating it. So it's kind of understanding this, but that's a really hard thing to get across anywhere, yep. you know, in any situation. It's like, well, yes, this is apple, but it's like not fresh apple. It's like a fake version of, of apple that's been concocted in, in a lab, but it's natural because it's gone from yeast. You know, this is, it's really complicated to talk about, to talk about flavor. Um, but with off flavors specifically, it's a strange one because we do, we do learn them as a negative characteristic. So we learn them specifically if we're, if we're able to, and that's kind of a privilege that not many people can have, you know, it's expensive to do flavor off flavor training. Mm. Um, so we learn it very specifically, but if you haven't had that training, how can you get across those characteristics yeah. in a simple way that people actually understand? Yeah. I mean, what, what suggestions or recommendations would you make to brewers list to this who maybe want to do some kind of flavor training, but maybe they can't afford the off flavor sensory analysis training. Um, mm. I mean, I, I, I did it once. I don't think I appreciated it. Uh, I think it was paid for as well. Um, but I don't think I appreciated it at the time, the, the sort of cost involved, mm. but it, it was exceptional. Like you say, you know, you got spikes, a, a, a very well-known beer from a very large American <laughs> brewery. That's a red and white label. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, like for any brewers that are wanting to brush upon on it, what, what would you do you suggest? Yeah, it's, it's a difficult one. And I mean, I, I would say that as a, an industry professional, it's an essential expense if you want to understand flavor. Um, I think it's, it's, it, it's expensive, but it's also, but it's not as expensive as losing customers because your beer is, is not good enough. You know, maybe it's a couple of hundred quid, which is, you know, just a few batches of a few casks of ale or a few kegs, you know, it's, it's a, it's a ultimately a small amount to pay to, to really truly understand those flavors. So for me, I think it's, it's a really important thing for the general consumer. It's a bit more inaccessible perhaps. Um, and the only way to really get around that is to drink bad beer and, but have someone guide you or kind of understand that certain beers naturally have certain flavor profiles to them and, and seeking out those commercial beers to then learn those, those flavors. So for example, the very well-known American brand that you just spoke spoke about is has as aldehyde, so it has this green apple character to it. Um, Carling is has like um, DMS, which is like a kind of a corn, kind of a sweet cream corn character to it. People often talk about um, Pilsner Quell and Czech Pilsner as having diestol, this the buttery richness to it. Um, so you can get that to taste it. If you want to try light struck beer, you buy any beer in a green bottle and just leave it out. And if that becomes a bit more, a bit harder to understand, then get that same beer in a can. So buy a bottle of Carlsberg and a can of Carlsberg, leave the bottle outside in, in the light for a day to really intensify it and then have it side by side to, to, to kind of get those, to get those flavors. You know, there are, there are ways in which you can have access to these characteristics without spending hundreds of pounds, yeah. but really it's, it's really useful to be guided in those tastings. 
Yeah. I think um, just as well, just sitting down and, as you said earlier, writing notes mm. and and being really intentional um, about it. Again, coming back to this judging I was doing yesterday, you know, I've, um, I mean, I've been involved in plenty of beer judging before, but um, I think because it was on Zoom, rather than having people around the table and sort of chatting and stuff in between and writing just on a, you know, piece of paper, like, because I was typing and stuff, like, I was able to, like, make lots of notes because I'm, I'm really slow at writing but i can type really quickly and to just like observe beer in a glass and and how the bubbles compact on the head and whether and what the lacing's like and so on and describe it it, it just made me analyze beer on another level and i think what what makes i guess the ultimate question is like what makes for a good beer you know is is it something that's technically well executed or is it the as people will say the the beer that you like mm. yeah and really the only way to understand beer in that way is to take the time to to really focus on it you know if you only ever just open a beer and drink it and you're happy with that that's that's fine and you'll always be able to say this this beer is tasting good today or doesn't taste as fresh as before or this one's nice and, and for most people, that simple hedonic assessment of I like it or I don't like it is enough. Mm. But if you want to go into more and you want to really start thinking about it, the only way to do that is to, to just thoughtfully spend time with those beers and find those nuances, find those differences. Be like, well, this is different to this because I like this more because this one is not quite as good because. So I'm doing a bit more of this at the moment. So one sort of because of this beer will... I'm much more uh, acutely aware of flavour, I suppose. But I'm also writing a book about tasting beer. And I'm doing lots of side-by-side tastings of the same style. So the other day I did um, Munich Hellas. So I had, I think I started off with three, but actually added, added another couple of beers to it. And I had the three beers side-by-side. And I made the notes on them individually. But then it was about the comparison. So it was, well, this one is slightly drier at the end. This one has more of a malt characteristic to it. This one has more of a snap from the hop. So as you begin, one, as you begin to develop an appreciation of flavour, then as an appreciation of flavour in its in its context. So this is this tastes toasty and bready and dry. Then you understand it in the context of this is a Munich Helles. So does it work? Is it a good version of a Munich Helles? Is it classic? Is it atypical because it's been dry hopped or it's got some Munich malt in there, which is or some Vienna malt in there, which is making it a bit more nutty, whatever. Then you can make those comparisons as the next step. Like this one is better than this, or I prefer this one because, but the only way to do that is to really just spend the time and really thinking about it. Um, and for me that I, I, I love making the notes when I'm doing that because then I am thinking really nerdily about it. I guess that leads me on nicely to um, a question I had about um, flavours and comparing them to other beers. So again, when you're judging beers, obviously they're put into similar categories. So you get like an IPA round, pale ale round, whatever. And what I'm, this is a bugbear of mine anyway. Um, What I'm finding with IPAs is that they're all starting to blend into one, like one hazy citra mosaic combo of 
tropical, pineapple-y goodness. Like, what, what, what's your view on these beers that are all really, really, really similar? Because I, I do find, like, with Best Bitters, for example, they're all quite different, even though the style is, you know, it's even though you've got your style and your common parameters. Um, IPAs all seem to be going in this direction of just all being generic clones of one another. Like, what I just wonder what your opinion was on all that. Yeah, uh, it's it's really interesting because I think Citroen Mosaic makes delicious IPAs, and it's it's reliable. You know, as a brewer, as a drinker, you know that it's going to be good. You know, or at least you hope that it's going to be good if the brewer does it right. Yep. You're going to get something tasty. So it just works. It works for everybody. Um, and I, I want to drink that beer. You know, if that, if that beer is if that beer is delicious, I want to I want to drink loads of it. Um, I think what happens is if you drink enough of them, you start to realize the better ones. So you could drink 10 in a row or 10 small tasters in a row. And there'll be something about one or two of them. You're like, okay, I prefer that one because of, because of this. So it then comes down to like that micro nuance that, that makes something stand out. And I think that's the same in anything. You know, we're just talking about Munich Helles. You could stand that next to a Carling. You'd be like, they're essentially the same flavor profile, different ABV, but essentially the same flavor profile. But one is just better because it has a bit more to it, has more complexity, has more going on. And I think that's the same with any sort of citra, citra mosaic combination. Um, but then, you know, that's almost like the base that we're learning. So we're learning, this is the base flavor of a hazy IPA. It has these characteristics, has this texture. And then next time we're going to order the one that's got the Idaho 7 in it. And then we're going to order the, order the one with the Galaxy and the Nelson in it. So we then use that as a way to be able to understand and learn new flavors. It's in a way, it's, it's not quite a neutral palette, the Citra Mosaic, but it's, it's a very familiar thing that's always, that's always similar enough that allows us to then learn a bit more about other hot flavors because of, because of that base that we've learned, I suppose. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's almost become the new standard, hasn't it? In the way that like with yeasts, for example, we had a period where it was like USO5, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. um, California type, clean um, fermentation profile. And now, now we're moving on to this more ester driven, mm. um, intense flavor profile. I just, I just know for one that um, if I come across, again, with, with the judging, like if I, if, if there are lots of beers that are similar and then there's one that's even just remotely different, um, whether it's just, it's got more malt character to it, it just stands out a mile because there, there's something more complex within the flavor than just mm. a citra mosaic that, you know, yeah. um, and it's, it's interesting because they're not, it's not like those flavors are one dimensional. There's lots of things going on, but it almost has become one dimensional because you just become so accustomed to it. We're so bombarded by <laughs> the, those beers that, um, you know, by the time you get around to drinking anything slightly different, you're like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. But, you know, if as long as people who are drinking it are happy, then I think the brewer's done their job. And for most drinkers, they just want this easy drinking, hazy IPA that's that's got the right flavour. So I think it works. Yeah. I think one thing that you mentioned there about esters, for me, this is a really important kind of ingredient in beer that, or actually just yeast in general, that people don't so much talk about. And... I think that so many drinkers don't necessarily realize how much impact the yeast has on the flavor. Mm. 
So we talk about hops and we talk about malt, but it's very, it's much less frequently spoken about the character from the yeast. But I think if you were somehow able to, to put every, say you walk into a pub that's got 20 beers on tap and you could pour a pint of each of them and then somehow remove all of the yeast character, it would almost be like you rubbed out all the shading that was around the outside of them. It was almost like you, you turn them from 3D into 2D. Like the yeast adds so much to it. And I think once you start understanding where certain characteristics or what characteristics the yeast is bringing, it almost brings that beer to life in a new way. And so a lot of these new hazy IPAs, they really have an expressive yeast character. A lot of that fruitiness is coming from, is coming from that yeast. You know, we talked about these more unusual um, fruit-driven flavours, which are not necessarily from hops. Maybe it's like a, a fruity vanilla flavour. Maybe it's these like peachy apricot. Maybe it's like candied mango or mango sorbet or something. Like these are more often but they're not being created with the yeast as well as the, as well as the hops. Um, and a lot of the time, Best Bitter, you mentioned how there's more nuance and there's more variety with Best Bitter. And particularly, I think, when you look at the traditional old family brewers, like it's almost like their, their fingerprint, their kind of their essence in every beer is their yeast. Yeah. You know, I, I live near Harvey's now, and it's such an unusual and expressive um, flavour that that yeast brings. You know, I used to live in London, Fuller's yeast, again, really unusual, really kind of marmalade and it presents this kind of fruitiness. Harvey's is, to me, it's almost like this bruised apple kind of character, this fruit that comes with it. You know, you travel to, I was at Theakston's Brewery recently, and they get more of this sort of sweet cherry and banana kind of esters. And even Guinness, you drink Guinness in Ireland, and it has this yeast character this fresh yeast character that comes be what, because of freshness. And that's almost like berry or, or, or banana even. And it's once you start noticing these, I think you start noticing that actually yeast is a really integral part of, of flavour profile. Yeah. Well, I did a, a flavour comparison when I worked at Sheffield Brewery where we, we used to make this um, best bitter called Crucible Best. And um, we used a, a dried yeast strain commercially um but i bought a i think it was what a white lab strain um of i can't remember the exact strain it was called british ale yeast that was it i think it was from originally from the ringwood brewery and uh pitched it into a little fermenter and then bottled some and when people came in to have a pint of the best bitter I'd also pour them a little taster from this bottle and say, hey, try this, let me know which one you prefer. And it was so interesting seeing the reaction from people. Mm. Um, I'd, I'd love to say that people could pick out, you know, the, the, the one with the liquid yeast strain rather than the dried one and, and preferred that. It was, re it was really split, but um, one thing that a lot of people did say was that the one with the liquid yeast strain had a much smoother fruitiness to it. Whereas mm -hmm. the the other one was a bit drier, and again, it comes down to whether people like that kind of smoothness in a in a beer, or they they want something that's more dry, or not. And it's yeah, it, the fermentation just fascinates me. And mm. again, coming back to the double IPA that is sat on my desk here, um, all the hops went in at the start of fermentation um, yep. to get some biotransformation, and that that's a whole rabbit hole. That I'm just starting to try and understand but the 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 aroma on it is just intense 
And it just, it, you know, I, I don't think, because I've never dry hops like that before. It just smells so much different. Yeah. And that interaction between hop and yeast is fascinating. Yeah. Because it can create something completely new. It can just evolve those flavors in ways which we can't quantify easily yet. Yeah. You know, we can't add that to like a biotransformation wheel because no one really understands it and it's <laughs> evocative and it's unusual. And yeah, but it, but it's created these flavor profiles, which are becoming normal now for people. Mm. I think if we'd have given someone um, 15, 10 years ago, IPAs that we've got today, it would have been incredibly alien and unusual. Whereas now that is very normal to have beers that have this volume of flavor to them. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I wonder where it's going to go next. There's only so, <laughs> only so many s'mores you can uh, shove in a, a stout and uh, dry hops you can put in a fermenter. <laughs> well, yeah, well, we'll see about that. Saison's, yeah, come on, Saison's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give me more pills yeah. Um it's, it's interesting because, you know, it's really hard to describe flavours. We've been talking about, particularly in with subtle flavours, but if you've got something that's so intense and so in your face and so obvious, then people get it. And I think there's this really pleasing sensation or this pleasing sort of, um, it's, it's, it's very gratifying when someone says, smell the orange and mango in this beer. And you're like, oh shit, it actually does smell like orange and mango. It's like, I do, I get this now. I understand that beer has these flavors and that I'm actually able to experience them. And I think that's one of the reasons that styles like hazy IPA, like pastry stouts, like fruit sours, they're popular because, because people get it. You don't need to work hard for it. Mm. You know, if I give you a pint, pint of Harvey's Best or um, kind of any regional ale and say, can you describe the flavors in this to me? It's really difficult to do it unless you're really thoughtful about it. You might just be like, it's bitter or it's a bit fruity or it's a bit, ready but it's really hard to do a bit more than that because of that subtlety whereas if you get given this really intense full-on hot bomb the the flavors are right there for you it's like they're jumping out the glass into your face and we can very easily describe it and describing flavor is it is really a difficult thing you know we could we we could any of any of us could walk into a room and there'll be a stranger standing in the corner and we could describe them quite accurately we could say they are medium height, they are lean build, they have long flowing red hair, they have, you know, whatever. We could describe them quite accurately. And we could do that without preference. So you don't necessarily need to find them attractive or unattractive or whatever. You can describe them very, very accurately, very easily. But if someone just hands you a glass of liquid and says, tell me about this. It's very hard to do. We might be able to make an assessment of the way that it looks. We might say, okay, well, it's clear and I can see bubbles in it and it's got some nice foam on top or it looks dark. And then we can taste it and we can make a simple hedonic assessment. Like, yes, I like it. No, I don't like it. But to go beyond that is a, is a really difficult thing to do. And it's almost like the language part of our brain doesn't connect with the flavor sense. So we need to work really hard to create that connection in our brain. And I'm not sure, I don't think any scientists have figured this part out, you know, why, why we find it so hard to describe flavor or why we have to, to train for it. 
And I was thinking the other day, it just, it just popped into my head when I was out on a run or something. I was like, well, maybe, maybe the reason we can't describe food and what we're tasting is because maybe that's dangerous to us. If we're talking while we're eating and drinking, maybe, maybe we might choke. Maybe we might <laughs> swallow our food. Maybe we might spit it out. Like maybe, maybe we're not programmed and predispositioned to that because we don't need to do that. We need to be able to say, yeah, it's good. I'll eat it. No, it's not good. I don't want it. Yeah. We don't need to know more than that. So there is this disconnect in the brain between the flavor experience and the, uh, and the language experience. And that flavor experience comes from, again, going back to, I guess, old humans tasting something that was familiar. If you've had it before and you know that it's good, then you know that it's safe and you know that you can eat it again. So we learn these flavors. They stick in our brains. And they stay there. They stay there indefinitely. You know, we basically don't forget smells and don't forget flavors. We don't necessarily always have them on hand, like this big file of facts of the thousands of flavors that we've tasted in our life, but they're stored away in our brain. And, and at any moment we can recall them. You know, if we taste something, if we have a candy or a cake that reminds us of when we were eight years old, they're in there somewhere stored because there's something important about kind of understanding these flavors but we don't need to describe what that flavor is to people. Yeah, goodness. So that's the hard part. It's th- that kind of that kind of memory is quite eerie really, isn't it? Like um, mm. there'll be I'll be sometimes I'll be doing something I'll be somewhere and I'll 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 breathe in and I'm transported back to my granddad's house. Yeah, and, it's an amazing sense that. It, it is and and also all, all the memories associated with it, the the sort of 1960s kitchen, the the <laughs> not the noddy glass, <laughs> this glass that had like a, a an old you know, painting of Noddy on it, you know, his, his mint mm. hedge, you know, the, the everything, you know, just from smelling something. And yeah. Uh, and it's amazing. Like you can feel things like every now and again, I'll, I'll remember my uh, granddad's old um, pipe and the cigar box that he had. And I, I, I was probably 10 years old when, when I had that, maybe younger than that, maybe seven, eight, nine. And I would remember like pretending to smoke it and things. And that just comes from a very unusual smell, which then links to the way that I can feel the pipe, you know, on my lips. Mm. It's such a powerful sense that, you know, Proustian kind of recollection of, of flavor. Um, it's wonderful. And it, it's one of those lovely surprises that comes because you can't predict it. You can't go out and be like, right, I'm going to smell this thing from my childhood today because you just can't do it. Yeah. You know, it only comes every now and again, it will just pop into your, pop into your brain. Like, oh, wow. Yeah. That reminds me exactly of a fruit salad sweet that I haven't eaten since I was, you know, 15 years old or something. <laughs> Bro, as ever, it's, it's been great to have you on the podcast, Mark. Um, how, how can people buy the Flavour Wheel? And I, and, I yeah. said, and I recommend they do, not just obviously because I'm talking to you now, but I, I found it really useful. Um, so and I, I suggest any brewers out there um, of, of getting one and sticking it in your brewery somewhere so you can see it and refer to it. So how can people get hold of it? Yeah, and I definitely designed it for brewers as well as drinkers. You know, I wanted it to work for for everybody. So it has that range of flavors that works. Um, and I'm sending them from my website. So it's beerdredge, uh, beerdredge.com. Um, everything's on there. I'm doing it all myself. So it's all in my spare room, packing it all up. Each one, each one comes with a handwritten note to say thank you. And, you know, I've, I've worked hard on this and I really want people to appreciate um this, but I also want it to still be personal. This is not something I'm just going to send off to Amazon and, you know, get shipped out. You know, this is something that's, I want to be a kind of an important part of the beer industry going forward and actually to create something that has, that creates meaning. 
um, whether that is someone drinking in a bar, someone who has a poster up that goes in their, in their kitchen or a brewer that wants it for sensory analysis. So there's a, a nice breadth to it. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, it's that time again at the bar for another week of the Hot 4 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify and all other good platforms. Be sure to visit hotforward.beer to find out how we can help you get ahead in the brewing and beer business. We make your beer look as good as it tastes and we help you brew up a better business through branding, marketing and consultancy. Remember to follow us on social media at Hot Forward Beers and for another week. Cheers. Cheers.